0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The world seemed to stop when Irving Stauffer picked up the ringing phone and heard his daughter Beth saying, Hello? for a moment he was too shocked to respond he hadn't heard from his wife or daughter since the day they disappeared a month ago he had fervently prayed every day they'd been gone he prayed that they were safe prayed that they would return to him now here was his little girl's voice an answer to all those prayers amazingly after a month of silence Beth was calling to wish him a happy Father's Day. Irving felt overwhelmed with both agony and relief. He was close to weeping, but he tried to keep the tremble out of his voice. He didn't want to upset his daughter. He asked her when she was coming home, but Beth said she didn't know. Before he could press her further, she said she had to hang up. It was heart-wrenching. He couldn't bear to let her go. But a moment later, she was gone. Irving listened to the dial tone for a moment before placing the phone's receiver back on the cradle. He felt tears welling up in his eyes. The conversation was devastatingly brief, but he latched on to one beacon of hope. Over the last month, in his darkest moments, he had wondered if his wife and daughter were still alive. Now, he had an answer. After taking a moment to thank God for this incredible gift, Irving picked up the phone again to call the police. Hi. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we talked about how 29-year-old Ming Sen Chu spent 15 years obsessing over his former high school math teacher, 36-year-old Mary Stoffer. On May 16, 1980, Ming kidnapped Mary and her eight-year-old daughter, Beth. Over the course of this crime, he murdered a six-year-old boy, Jason Wilkman, who witnessed the abduction. This week, we'll discuss Mary and Beth's captivity with Ming and the aftermath of the ordeal. On the morning of May 17, 1980, Ming Sen Xu opened the door of his bedroom closet where he had imprisoned Mary and Beth Stauffer the night before. Mary immediately asked him to let her call her husband Irving, but Ming refused. Mary then began to beg. She pleaded with him to let them go or to at least release her daughter. Ming didn't seem moved by her appeals, but he said that he might release Beth soon. He wasn't interested in the girl. He only wanted Mary. Just as Mary again wondered who this man was, Ming put a blindfold on her face. He left Beth in the closet and forced Mary into the living room where he tied her to the couch. Once she was bound, he set up video equipment, pressed record and began interrogating Mary. The questioning went on for hours as he tried to prod her into remembering him. He told her to think back on her time as a teacher at Alexander Ramsey High School, prompting Mary to guess that Ming must have been one of her students, but she still couldn't remember his name. Ming grew increasingly angry and bitter that Mary couldn't recall him. He said, I know it's 15 years later, but it's burned into my mind, okay? I can name the people. I can picture you in the classroom. I can see how the desks were placed. See, that type of thing burns into your mind." Ming then explained that when he was Mary's student, she had given him a B grade in her algebra class. He said that he had earned all A's in his other classes, but because of that B grade, he'd been denied a scholarship to college. Since he wasn't able to go to college, he said, he had been drafted into the military and sent to fight in the Vietnam War, where he was captured and held as a POW. He told Mary that his whole life had gone wrong because of her. She had destroyed his entire trajectory by a single mediocre grade. Nearly everything Ming told Mary Stauffer was a lie He had not been denied the chance to go to college. He had attended university for more than a year before dropping out. He had never been drafted or sent to Vietnam. He used these lies as an excuse to justify the punishments he intended to inflict on Mary. Ming told Mary that he would let her go within the next four days so that she and Beth could go on their planned missionary trip to the Philippines. They were scheduled to leave that Wednesday, May 21st. But first, Ming said, Mary would have to pay for ruining his life. Only then would he be able to forgive her and let her go. After lying to Mary about how she had wronged him, Ming informed her he was going to rape her. Mary desperately tried to dissuade him. She told him that her body was not for him and that she'd prefer he beat her. She reminded him that she loved her husband and had always been faithful in her marriage. These pleas made no impact on Ming. He seemed to take pleasure in her fear and pain, saying, you'll probably have emotional scars, but see, that's the beauty of it. You will have the same feeling that I have had and that evens things up. Before I continue with Ming's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 1980 and 1981, sociologists Diana Scully and Joseph Marola interviewed 114 convicted rapists. The responses showed that many rapists use sexual violence to get revenge or to punish women. The authors concluded that, in some rapes, both revenge and punishment were directed at victims because they represented women whom these offenders perceived as collectively responsible and liable for their problems. Ming lied about enduring tragedies and misfortune, but he was telling the truth about being deeply angry and unhappy. He blamed Mary for this because, in his mind, he was in love with her and she refused to love him back. Author Eileen Bridgman-Biernot who wrote about Ming-Sin Shu in the book, Stalking Mary, suggested that Ming used rape as both a punishment and a tool to fulfill his fantasies of having a relationship with a woman who wanted nothing to do with him. After the assault, Mary asked Ming why he was filming her. He said that it was so that he'd be able to look back on the tapes later after releasing her. If he felt himself growing angry at her again, he'd have the tapes to remind him that he'd already taken his revenge on her and that they were even. After that first assault, Mary hoped it was over and that he'd let her go as he'd promised. But Ming mocked her. He said, Do you think 10 minutes is gonna solve a couple years? I've waited all these 15 years. Mary told him, I know that you're messing with God's property and he's going to lose his patience with you. It's not me you're messing with. You're messing with God. But Ming ignored this. He locked Mary back in the closet with Beth. Mary was deeply shaken, traumatized, but she did not lose faith that God would guide her through the ordeal. And when she was back in the closet, she found a clue that filled her with hope an old dry cleaning bag on the floor. The bag was labeled with Ming's address. This gave Mary the first hint as to where she had been taken. Now that she knew where she was, she was a step closer to figuring out how to escape. Mary memorized the address and made Beth memorize it as well. Then she destroyed the tag so that Ming wouldn't realize she had discovered where he lived. The next day, the St. Paul Pioneer Press reported on the kidnappings. The article cited two witnesses who had seen a man wearing sunglasses and a black leather jacket skulking around the hair salon parking lot where Ming had accosted Mary and Beth. The report also noted that the FBI had opened an investigation. This worried Ming. He didn't realize he had been seen. He also didn't realize that the authorities would be involved so quickly. He hoped that people would assume Mary had left voluntarily. Once he learned otherwise, he forced Mary to write a letter to Irving. In this letter, Mary said she needed some time away to think before their trip. When Irving received the note, he immediately turned it over to the FBI. This forced investigators to consider the possibility that Mary may have left of her own volition but it didn't fit in with what they knew about the Stoffers. Authorities interviewed a number of friends and relatives. All of them said that the Stoffers were a happy family. Mary was devoted to her husband. She would never leave without talking it over with Irving first, and she certainly wouldn't keep Beth from speaking to her father. Ultimately, the FBI concluded that Mary's abductor had forced her to write the letter They did not publicize their thoughts out of fear that he might kill his hostages if he knew he was still being investigated once the letter was sent ming felt safer but he continued to keep mary and beth in his cramped stifling bedroom closet he wouldn't let them leave even to eat or drink he brought them their meals which they had to eat in complete darkness Three days passed before he allowed them out to wash their clothes or shower. Ming would leave Beth alone in the dark for hours when he took Mary out to repeatedly rape her. Other times, he separated Mary and Beth for long hours by locking Beth outside in his van. Isolated, overheated, and terrified, the girl became so stressed that she began plucking the hairs from her head, one by one. When the mother and daughter were trapped in the closet together, they prayed, told each other Bible stories, and waited for the time to pass. They eagerly looked forward to Wednesday the 21st, the day Ming promised to release them. Mary didn't know whether to try to sleep or to try to stay awake. Sleeping was an escape from this nightmare. The roasting hot closet prison Which reeked of sweat and urine. But she felt she had to stay alert. She was in survival mode. Everything could change in an instant. Everything she took for granted could be ripped away from her. But Mary wouldn't let herself fall apart or lose control. She had to hold herself together for Beth's sake. She had to protect her daughter from this evil at all costs. And perhaps with God's help, they would somehow get through this. It couldn't go on forever. Perhaps their captor would grow bored with them. Perhaps he would feel remorse and see the error of his ways. Mary didn't care how it happened as long as Ming kept his promise to set them free. That Wednesday morning, Mary heard Ming wake up and get dressed. She felt her hopes rise as he prepared for the day and then sink when she heard him leave the house for work. She realized that Ming wasn't going to keep his word. She wouldn't be home in time for her trip to the Philippines. She didn't know if she'd ever see her home again. When we return, we'll see how Mary and Beth were driven to take desperate measures to escape. Now, back to the story. After kidnapping 36-year-old Mary Stauffer and her 8-year-old daughter Beth on May 16, 1980, 29-year-old ming Sen Xu kept them locked in his bedroom closet. He only allowed Mary out for brief periods in order to rape her. The Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Ramsey County Sheriff's Department worked tirelessly to track them down, but they had few leads other than vague witness descriptions. They knew the disappearance was linked to the abduction of Jason Wilkman, whom Ming had murdered the night of the kidnappings, but the boy's body had not yet been discovered. To investigators, the unknown perpetrator and his victims seemed to have disappeared without a trace. The community mourned the loss, sending the remaining Stauffer family, Irving and his young son, Stephen, cards and letters to express their condolences, but Irving, a devout Baptist preacher, remained hopeful. When asked what he felt about his wife and daughter's fate, he said that he felt very strongly that they were still alive, and that he prayed every day for their safe return. He said, nothing is impossible with God. Mary and Beth were praying for the same thing, but days under Ming's control stretched into weeks. At times, Mary heard footsteps in other parts of the house and she realized that someone else must live there. She was hearing Ming's younger brother, 19-year-old Ron, who lived in a separate apartment in the basement. She said she would sometimes try to bang on the carpeted closet floor to get his attention. Ron later said he never heard Mary trying to signal him, but at times he thought he heard strange voices in the house. He wondered if his brother had a girlfriend, but he and his brother were on such bad terms that he never asked. He stayed in his own part of the house, rarely venturing upstairs, and put all thoughts of his brother out of his mind. Before long, Ming started to feel more comfortable with his hostages, He began letting them out of the closet at times. He brought Mary into the kitchen to cook meals, which they ate together at the kitchen table. He bought Beth books and board games, which he occasionally played with her. In his head, he finally had a real family and actively ignored their terror and anguish. One hindrance to this fantasy was the fact that Mary would not show him affection Although he seemed to derive pleasure from sexual sadism and causing Mary pain through rape, Ming also desperately wanted her to love him. While assaulting Mary, Ming frequently experienced sexual dysfunction. He blamed this on the fact that Mary wouldn't kiss or caress him. Mary simply repeated that she could not give him what he wanted. Psychologist A. Nicholas Groth an expert in forensic mental health and the psychology of sex offenders, collected data indicating that 34% of men who rape or one out of every three offenders show clear evidence of some type of sexual dysfunction at the time of the offense. Dr. Groth suggested that this may be because offenders who are likely to rape are also likely to experience negative emotions such as anxiety, rage, and depression during the act that might impede their physiological function. Ming did frequently experience these emotions, but he had no previous sexual experience and he didn't know that his own psychological torment might be the cause of his impotence. He was enraged by the fact that he couldn't fully enjoy the experience he had fantasized about for so long, which only exacerbated his problems but instead of reflecting on his own behavior, he accused Mary of demoralizing him. One night, Ming became furious when Mary would not respond to his touch. He said, "'Have you ever watched anybody die by suffocation?' Then he pulled Beth out of the closet and said, "'You are going to see your daughter die by suffocation "'if you will not cooperate.' Beth cried, and asked her mother what was happening. Mary responded that Ming wanted her to do something wrong, something she could not bring herself to do. As Beth began to cry, Ming grabbed a large plastic bag and tied it around the girl's head. Mary had never felt a terror like this. She believed with her whole heart that God had protected them thus far, that he had kept them alive that he had given them the strength not to give up when things seemed hopeless. But as Mary looked into her daughter's eyes, she saw a rising panic that stopped her heart. Through the plastic bag, she could see the girl's face shine with sweat. And with each breath, the child drew the plastic closer and closer. She would run out of air soon. She would be out of time. Mary raced over to Beth and grabbed at the bag, meaning to rip it from Beth's face, but Ming shoved her back. As Beth's eyes fluttered, Mary could not take another second of watching her child suffer. She moved to Ming's side and kissed him on the cheek. He told her it wasn't good enough, so she kissed him on the mouth. Finally, Ming removed the bag. Mary felt her body sag with relief She couldn't bear to look at Ming, so she kept her eyes on Beth. The girl had started to weep, taking deep breaths of air between each sob. Mary listened to those gasping cries and thanked God Beth was still with her. In early June, about three weeks after the kidnapping, Ming announced a change in their grim routine. He wanted to attend a trade conference in Chicago He refused to leave Mary and Beth at home because he didn't want them to escape, so he would have to bring them with him. Ming knew it was risky. By bringing his captives across state lines, he realized he might face more serious charges if caught. He told Mary they would have to be very careful. He even spent hours researching famous kidnappings as he didn't want to make the same mistakes that other kidnappers had. Ming planned for the trip by renting an RV and covering the windows with cardboard. He brought a gun with him and warned Mary and Beth that if they tried to get anyone's attention, he would kill anyone who tried to come to their rescue. They left for their trip just before midnight on Monday, June 9th. When they made stops, they parked in isolated areas. At night, when they went to sleep, Ming wrapped a bicycle cable around Mary and Beth's waists. He secured the other end of the cable to the gas line under the camper stove. He told them that if they tried to pull on the cable, the line would break and they would all asphyxiate from breathing in the gas. They sometimes went shopping or stopped at fast food restaurants. Whenever they encountered people, Ming reminded Mary of his promise to kill anyone who tried to interfere. Mary thought about attempting to signal a stranger and shout for help, but she was too afraid to take the risk. She followed Ming's orders and everything went according to plan. Ming was pleased that they didn't encounter any trouble. He seemed in good spirits when they got to Chicago. At one point during the trip, he even took Mary to a public phone booth and allowed her to make a call. She told him that she wanted to find out if her husband had moved out of their apartment since they had planned to leave for the Philippines weeks before. Ming wouldn't allow her to call Irving, but he did let her call a family friend, Paul, as long as she didn't identify herself. Paul gave her a new number where she could reach Irving, which Ming recorded on a torn piece of paper from the phone book. When they returned from their trip, Ming allowed Beth to call her father to wish him a happy Father's Day. Irving was elated to hear her voice, but the conversation was brief. A few days later, on June 20th, Ming encouraged Mary and Beth to celebrate Mary's birthday. He brought home a cake, lit candles, and sang to her. Ming seemed determined to pretend that he, Mary, and Beth were becoming a real, normal family. He knew that they only stayed because he forced them. But a part of him wanted to believe otherwise, that they truly cared about him. Around this time, he moved Mary and Beth into a larger closet, and he became less meticulous about pushing furniture in front of the door to trap them inside. On July 2nd, Ming's brother Ron moved out of the house to participate in a college study abroad program. With the house to themselves, Ming felt more at ease, less worried about the Stoffers being discovered. After all, he had kept them a secret for over six weeks. On July 4th, he decided to take Mary and Beth to a fireworks display at a nearby lake. He brought a gun with him and reminded his captives that he was willing to kill all of them, including himself, at any sign of trouble. During the fireworks show, Mary and Beth stood silently among the throngs of people. They didn't give any sign that anything was wrong, but when Mary saw a sheriff's car parked nearby, she noted the department phone number printed above the bumper. She memorized the number. On the morning of July 7th, Mary and Beth's 53rd day of captivity, Ming told Mary that he was thinking about renting the RV again He had inquired about long-term use and discovered he could rent the camper for up to a year. As Mary listened to Ming talk about future trips and vacations, she was struck with the grim certainty that Ming was never, ever going to release them. She said, It had occurred to me before that, but it wasn't until that day that I despaired to the point that I said to Beth, He's never going to let us go. That afternoon, Ming went to work. He left Beth and Mary chained together inside the closet with the steel bicycle cable attached to their waist and looped around the hinge of the closet door. With Ming gone, Beth switched on the small television set that Ming had given her. Mary did not look at the television. She was staring at the hinges on the closet door. She later said, God seemed to call my attention to those hinges, Mary reached out, grabbed the hinge, and pulled out the pin. She said it slid out easily, like it was greased. Mary then went to work on the other hinge. Soon, the door came loose, and so did the chain that bound them. Mary stepped out of the closet. Beth was frightened. She said, ''No, Mommy, no. We have to go back in the closet. We're going to make him mad.'' Mary responded, Beth, this is our chance. We have to go now. Mary hurried into the kitchen, knowing that Ming might return at any moment. She recalled the number she had seen on the back of the sheriff's car. Then she grabbed the telephone and dialed. Mary told the dispatcher her name and recited the address she had memorized from the dry cleaning bag she had found on her first night trapped in Ming's closet. She also told them if they arrived and saw a black van in front of the house, that meant Ming was home. She emphasized that he was dangerous, saying, he'll kill us and anyone who tries to come in here. He has a lot of guns. Don't try to come in if he's here. After Mary hung up, Beth suggested they wait outside and hide behind the bushes. They crept out the back door, hid behind an old car in the backyard, and waited. When we return, Mary and Beth seize the chance to escape, and Ming reacts to their defiance. Now, back to the story. 29-year-old Ming-Sin Xu held 37-year-old Mary Stauffer and her 8-year-old daughter Beth captive for seven weeks. During that time, he terrorized and raped Mary, but he also remained fixated on the delusion that he was finally part of a loving family. He grew increasingly committed to keeping this fantasy alive. After 53 days, when Mary realized that he would never release them, She waited until he left for work, then removed the hinges on the closet door where Ming had trapped her and Beth. Once she was out of the closet, Mary called the sheriff's department. Thankfully, they didn't have to wait long. Within moments, deputies arrived and spotted Mary and Beth as they searched the property. They quickly brought the mother and daughter, still chained together, into their squad car and raced them to the Ramsey County Sheriff's headquarters. On the ride to the station, the sheriff's deputy asked, was Jason Wilkman with you in the house? Mary's heart sank as she realized that Ming had not released the six-year-old boy as he said he had done. She told the officers she had not seen the boy in seven weeks. She and the officers knew that he must be dead. Now that Ming's victims were accounted for, authorities next had to apprehend Ming himself. The Ramsey County Sheriff's Department worked together with the Minneapolis police and the FBI. Officials from all three organizations descended on Sound Equipment Services, Ming's electronics store on University Avenue, Southeast. Officers entered the store, Guns Drawn, and called out Ming's name. Ming did not resist as the officers placed him in handcuffs. Ming feigned confusion during the arrest. He kept repeating, what's this all about? But when officers began frisking his employees, Ming said, they're not involved in this. Officers loaded Ming into the back of a police car and drove him to the courthouse in St. Paul. In an ill-fated coincidence, Ming was led into the courthouse just as Mary and Beth or being escorted out to be taken home. As he passed her, Ming screamed at Mary. Why did you go? Why did you run? Mary cringed away from him as authorities quickly pulled Ming into the building. Finally, out of their captors' grasp, Mary and Beth went home to Irving and Stephen. As dozens of neighbors, seminary students, and members of their Baptist congregation celebrated their return, the Stauffers went to stay with Mary's parents in Duluth. She said that on her first night home, she was too excited to sleep. For the first time in weeks, she said, I could finally just lay there and listen to my family breathe. She tried not to think of Ming, who was soon charged for kidnapping and booked in the Ramsey County Jail but he was still consumed with thoughts of her and he was now more enraged than ever. Despite being locked in a jail cell, Ming racked his brain for a way to punish Mary. While in jail, he met a prisoner named Richard Green, whose sentence was about to end. Ming gave him Mary Stoffer's address and offered him $50,000 to kill her. To show he was serious, he wrote Richard a check for $1,000 as a down payment. He also pressed Richard to help him escape from jail. Ming was scheduled to be transported to the hospital for a psychiatric evaluation in a few days. He thought Richard might be able to break him free during the transfer. Richard took the money. When he got out of jail, he cashed Ming's check and bought himself a car, but he made no efforts to help Ming saying, no way do I wanna get involved. I don't want nothing to do with him. So, Ming started thinking of another way out. At the jail, prisoners were allowed to select candy from a snack cart. Each day, Ming would take a Kit Kat candy bar. He would eat the candy, then save the aluminum foil wrapper. He began hoarding the foil and planned to use it to disable a security alarm, but a deputy caught Ming with the foil as well as two screws he had taken from the bottom of the cafeteria chairs and confiscated the items. After that, Ming was designated a maximum security prisoner. Ming lost the privilege of eating in the cafeteria and he was segregated from the other inmates. He only left his cell to go to court. In August of 1980, 29-year-old Ming had his first hearing on his kidnapping charges. His attorneys submitted a filing indicating that he intended to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. A month later, on September 9, 1980, Ming's trial began. Mary Stauffer was called as a witness for the prosecution. Mary was composed and resolute as she entered the courtroom. She seemed to be in good spirits. She was ready to share her story and hopeful it would help bring Ming to justice. But as she walked up to the witness stand, Ming lunged at her. Court marshals rushed to restrain Ming. He began to scream, Why did you leave? Why did you go that day? Mary ignored him, and the judge ordered him to be quiet. Ming became offended. He didn't understand why he wasn't allowed to speak to Mary. Eventually, the marshals had to escort him from the room and the judge ordered a recess. When the trial resumed, Mary, Beth, and Irving Stoffer all testified. The jury viewed portions of the recordings being made when he sexually assaulted Mary. Psychiatrists testified for both the prosecution and the defense. Both sides argued that Ming was a significantly disturbed individual, showing traits associated with antisocial personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and aberrant sexual behavior. But while the defense argued that Ming lacked the capacity to understand or control what he was doing, the prosecution pointed out that Ming behaved rationally, despite his mental illness. He continued to go to work each day and run his store, showing no signs of psychosis. The prosecution psychiatrist further argued that the kidnapping wasn't an impulsive act that Ming couldn't control. He had prepared for it for months, if not years. He also knew it was wrong, or else he wouldn't have gone to such lengths to conceal the abduction. According to the prosecution psychiatrist, Ming actively chose to commit the crime, despite knowing that it was against the law. In his opinion, Ming, therefore, did not meet the legal criteria to support a finding of not guilty by reason of insanity. After closing arguments, the jury deliberated for less than eight hours. On September 17th, they returned with the verdict of guilty. Ming was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison, but the case wasn't over yet. Authorities believed that Ming had killed six-year-old Jason Wilkman four months earlier on the night he abducted Mary and Beth Stauffer. Once the kidnapping trial was over, Ming potentially faced new charges for murder. At that point, in the fall of 1980, Jason Wilkman's body had not been recovered. Officers had pleaded with Ming to reveal where he had left the boy, if only to give closure to Jason's parents. But Ming had refused to talk. Once he was found guilty of kidnapping, however, he changed his mind. Ming's lawyer negotiated a deal in which Ming would be charged with second degree murder rather than first, if he told authorities the location of the body. On October 28th, Ming led a group of searchers to the Carlos Avery Wildlife Management Area about 25 miles north of St. Paul. There, they found Jason Wilkman's remains. Only a skeleton was left of the body, along with the clothes the boy was wearing the day he encountered Ming. The county medical examiner discovered a fracture in the skull, indicating that he had died from a blow to the head. A week later, Ming was charged with one count of murder in the second degree and one count of kidnapping. He again, Pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Ming's second trial began on January 14, 1981. Mary Stoffer was again called by the prosecution to testify. Mary felt surprisingly calm. She knew that her ordeal was nearly over. Ming had already been sentenced for his crimes against her. Now, she only had to tell the jury everything she knew about the poor little boy, Jason Wilkman. She hoped there would be justice for him. Then, she and her family could move on and heal. Perhaps they could finally embark on their journey to the Philippines to resume their missionary work. Ming had derailed so much in their lives. As Mary spoke on the witness stand, she didn't look at Ming. She kept her eyes on the lawyer questioning her, But midway through her testimony, she heard a shriek, followed by gasps and startled cries. She looked around, confused, and saw a figure hurtling toward her. It was Ming. He leaped away from the defense table. He was charging to the witness stand. Then, Mary felt his weight crash into her. His arm closed around her neck. It happened so fast, Mary didn't have time to think or feel anything except surprise. Suddenly, Ming's hand jabbed at her face. Mary's cheek split open, and it was only then that she realized he had a knife. He had somehow managed to sneak it into the courtroom between his thighs. As he gripped Mary, he said, ''Lies, lies, unbelievable lies.'' The prosecutor told her to lie. She should know better. She's a religious person. She never lied to me before. It took several men to overpower Ming and drag him off Mary. Once they grabbed him, Ming went rigid and unresponsive. He seemed to be in a catatonic state. They had to carry him out of the courtroom. The court immediately recessed and Mary was taken to the hospital. The wound, required 62 stitches. After this shocking event, Ming's lawyers attempted to move for a mistrial, but the judge would not allow it. The trial resumed a few days later. The court ordered additional security, and from then on, Ming was to be strip searched before entering the courtroom. The trial went on until Saturday, February 21st, 1981, when a jury reached a verdict finding Ming Seng Shu guilty on the charge of kidnapping and murdering Jason Wilkman. In March of 1981, Ming was transferred to the Bureau of Prisons Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, where he was subject to further psychiatric evaluation. A few months later, he was transferred to a maximum security prison in Marion, Illinois. Ming was not a model prisoner. He was caught several times fashioning weapons out of pens or pieces of metal. In 1982, he assaulted another inmate and threatened the correctional officer who tried to separate them. He also refused to participate in available psychiatric services. He claimed he didn't need therapy or treatment. He had no desire to change or improve his behavior nor did he appear to feel any remorse for the harm he caused. He seemed to consider himself a victim. Mary Stauffer returned to her missionary work in the Philippines, where she spent many years on and off. In the next few decades, she gave various interviews on her experiences. She remained fervently committed to her faith, remarking that her religion guided her towards forgiveness and healing. For 30 years, Mary was safe from Ming and his obsessions, but in 2010, she found herself facing him once again. 59-year-old Ming was up for parole on July 6th of that year, but the Minnesota Commissioner of Corrections felt that he was still a danger to society. Under Minnesota law, a sexually dangerous person may be civilly committed and sentenced to stay indefinitely in a psychiatric hospital under a judge's order. As Ming's release date neared, state officials filed a petition in an effort to make sure that Ming would be kept away from the public once his criminal sentence was over. In April of 2010, Ming was escorted to the courthouse for his civil commitment hearing. Mary Stoffer, now 66, and her 38-year-old daughter, Beth, were also in attendance. Ming read from a prepared statement, apologizing to the Stauffer and Wilkman families and asking to be released into the custody of his 83-year-old mother, Mei. When Ming finished, the prosecution called Beth to the stand. Beth testified that even after 30 years, she still had nightmares and flashbacks about the seven weeks she was terrorized by Ming She said that if he were released, she would never feel safe. After the hearing, she further revealed to journalists outside the courtroom that Ming had once threatened her by saying, don't think that if I get caught and go to prison, I'm going to forget about you. When I get out, I'll go after you. And if you're dead, I'll go after your children. After listening to several hours of testimony from psychiatrists and witnesses, the judge ultimately ruled that Ming fit the criteria to be designated a sexually dangerous person. She ordered him to be civilly committed to the Maximum Security Hospital's Sexual Psychopathic Treatment Center in Moose Lake, Minnesota, immediately following his parole. Although Ming's civil commitment will be reevaluated every few years, he may never be released. When Mary was asked whether she worried about ever seeing him again, all she said was, if he turned his life over to God, then I will see him in heaven. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound designed by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs.